All right, it is the week of January 25th, 2024, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oje, and today we've got a lot of ground to cover, mostly TKO news, but before we get to that, we are going to talk about the UFC antitrust lawsuit updates. Judge Bulware did make a couple of key rulings and decisions we need to discuss, as well as push back the trial date, still in April, but push back nonetheless. And we need to talk about the expectations that we can have for the outcomes of this trial, as well as what not to expect and everything in between. Because unless there's a settlement in the 11th hour here, we are going to court and it's going to be a very interesting month of April and May for us MMA business nerds. Then we're going to move on to TKO stock news. Lots has been going on in terms of TKO, specifically over in the WWE side of the house, massive media rights deal. Um, a couple investment analysts have downgraded the stock from buy to hold for the first time since the stock went public. We're going to talk about why they did that and evaluate whether their analysis is pretty f- sound or not sound. And then obviously new allegations coming out about executive chairman of the board, TKO, Vincent McMahon, that are pretty horrific and could obviously affect TKO stock depending on how big the scandal is. So we're going to break all of that down. Then we're going to do a deeper dive into TKO's brand image. So along the same lines of the Vincent McMahon issues, uh, we obviously had Sean Strickland cause a bit of a stir amongst uh, both the MMA community, but the wider uh, media community as a whole. And we need to talk about what type of branding TKO is selling here with both of their companies and if it could end up hurting or even helping their stock price and target consumer acquisition. So I will break all of that down based on the trends I'm seeing, uh, but it, it's pretty amazing and a, a shift from where both companies were even just 10 years ago. Then we're going to talk about Kayla Harrison signing with the UFC. Is there actual star power being brought over? I've seen a lot of people in the MMA space, you know, say that Harrison is a massive signing. It's going to be a really big deal, but, We're going to take a look at Harrison's time in PFL, how much she moved the needle based on metrics we can track, and whether or not we can expect her to kind of rise to stardom in the UFC space where it's a little bit more crowded than, say, PFL was when she was starting out there. And last but not least, we are going to get to some PFL Bellator updates based on their press conference. They just had the Champs versus Champs conference. A couple of business notes uh, with, you know, PFL CEO Peter Murray coming out and stating a lot of plans for 2024 and the future that we need to address. So with that in mind, timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. Okay, so first thing I want to talk about today is some updates in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case. Still plan on getting to um, the documents that have been released. It's been kind of a slog of it. I haven't had the time with other obligations, but My hope is to get to them towards the end of this month and into early February for some episodes going into February as as this trial gets closer and closer. With that in mind, a couple of key updates here. Judge Boulware did deny the UFC's motion for summary judgment on the case, which was their last long shot hope, honestly, of avoiding a trial. Um, UFC essentially asked the court to rule trials unnecessary as no reasonable juror would ever side with the plaintiff's claim. Uh, Judge Boulware shot that down. As Paul Gift uh, points out, uh, by the way, Paul Gift and Jason Cruz both did great breakdowns uh, of this stuff, so check out their work. But um, in a Forbes article here that Paul had put up, um, 
he did point out that the reasoning behind this was a little bit puzzling in terms of basically Judge Bulware said this was a duplicative process and that the standard for class certification was stronger than uh, just, you know, this particular motion. So there was no reason to look at it again. He calls it lazy. I'd, I'd have to agree, uh, you know, in, in this particular regard. But either way, that motion has been denied. A trial date has been set. It was originally supposed to be for, um, I think, April 8th. It's now been pushed back to April 15th, so just a couple days after UFC 300. As I mentioned on last week's podcast, you know, WrestleMania and UFC 300 going on either side of the trial date, I think was kind of a little bit purposeful in terms of building those events up so big uh, just to kind of distract from media attention. Now, unfortunately for the UFC and WWE, that will not be as much of a distraction. We'll see how UFC 300 goes, but uh, still, you know, there'll be a couple days removed from that event. So media can kind of shift to the trial a little bit more. Um, and it's expected to be a four-week trial. Uh, there have been a couple other decisions regarding, you know, basically, you know, some some housekeeping type stuff, uh, as Gift mentions in the article here. Um, in terms of procedural stuff, not, nothing that's, you know, nothing of, of note here, right? Like, I mean, they're going to select jurors ahead of, the April 15th day, it's going to be a jury trial. So that's for one for people thinking it's just going to be judgeable. We're deciding it's not, it will be a jury trial. And keep in mind in these cases, it's not like a criminal trial, right? Where it's, you know, if one juror holds out, that's it. Um, it's much more of a majority type status in this scenario. So, you know, you don't need to convince every single juror that they're guilty. You just need to convince a little bit more than half the pool, uh, in order to win, and another thing to keep in mind here is that while we will get some more documents um, and depositions, we'll probably get some people called as witnesses, right? I would expect that Dana White will be called as a witness, um, but they're mostly going to focus, or at least his deposition will be entered in, but they're mostly going to focus on, you know, sort of these models, right? Uh, the topple and... Uh, Zimambulist models and, and singer uh, in, in terms of what counts and, and what is believed to be this monospony power through these economic models. Um, I am not the best source on that. I've done my research on it for sure during classification, but you know, again, Nash, Gift, and Cruz are, are all over that sense of things. Um, do have an article that I wrote regarding fighter MRP, which, you know, can come to account here where, you know, in terms of fighters actually making money that they generate tends to be that the top fighters are the ones that are underpaid, not, you know, somebody you're seeing on the prelims or early prelims, they generally take away from the actual cost. It's mostly at the top that's drawing these cards, right? Which, I mean, if you see people complain all the time, like, how are people not going into see the early prelims and paying like three or $400 for those, you know, seats? I mean, nowadays it's like a thousand, two thousand $2,000 for some of the lower bowl seats and they're not showing up for the prelims and they're barely making it to the main card. Well, that's, I mean, they really only care about the main card, right? 
casual fans. That's just how it is. So when you're looking at this, you know, again, um, the economics and, and the math behind it is definitely a little wonky and it will be interesting to see how a jury reacts to it. Um, as we talked about long ago during classification, and this is ages and ages ago, but just to remind everyone, um, some of the, you know, modeling here from the plaintiffs from the UFC side was experimental or, you know, had some holes in it that UFC kind of poked through and, and made, you know, economics people be like, well, that's a good point in terms of this might not work. Obviously judge Bulware saw enough to believe it did. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what a jury does, right? Um, how they weed out members of the jury will be interesting too. It's if a jury doesn't have a particular economic background, right? Like economics background, are they going to understand all of the math being presented from these expert witnesses, right? Like some of this math and these models are a little bit more advanced. Uh, so, you know, how will that be presented by either side? It's going to be very interesting. Um, very interesting, I feel like, in terms of seeing which side is able to get the upper hand through convincing, you know, 12 ordinary people, hey, this is monospony power or this isn't monospony power, etc. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's going to be a, a settlement reached prior to going to trial. Now, while trial is occurring, I feel like people forget that this can happen. You know, while you're in the middle of trial, if the UFC feels like it's really not going their way or vice versa, you can still make an offer, right? To try and settle part of it, to end the case, uh, to kind of, you know, get it over and done with, hedge your bets, because you never know how 12 random people are going to vote at the end of this. But I, I don't foresee it happening before the trial, and it'll greatly depend on how the first week goes if you look at maybe one side is reaching out for a potential deal, depending on, again, how things shake out, what jurors might believe. I think one thing that people need to expect, though, um, is that there is no injunctive relief here, right? Plaintiffs have given up on that. So that's big. There will not be the, hey, you're out of your contracts for the fighters moving forward. Uh, This only affects everybody up until 2017. The um, Cajun Johnson suit that is separate from this and has been kind of, you know, separated from this particular suit that could affect current fighters, but that's not anywhere near, you know, complete and done. Right? This will this is going to happen first for sure. So that that's waiting in the wings, but it's still way out there, and no injunctive relief is going to happen. So you're not going to see John Jones suddenly be a free agent or. Adesanya or people that could draw quite a bit, just be able to leave the promotion and go to other promotions like we talked about as a possible option or limits on length of contract or anything of that nature. That's not going to happen um, in this case. They've basically given that up, said, nope, we're dropping that. We just want to go after damages because Bulware made them decide, like, do you want injunctive relief or do you want damages? And plaintiffs representing most fighters that are now either retired or towards the tail end of their career are going to opt for damages, right? So 
you're just looking at a monetary blow here um, and possibly setting up the Cajun Johnson suit. But that's that's kind of a different um, beast, especially with some of the changes the UFC made in response to this initial suit, right? And Endeavor taking over the UFC with sunset clauses, far more free agency, things of that nature. That's a harder uphill battle. But this is still big. The fact it got this far is very big. And it could still be a significant amount of money that TKO has to pay. I mean, I believe the number that's thrown out there is $1.6 billion. That's, that's a lot of money. Now, this company is making about a billion dollars, you know, in revenue, um, six, seven hundred million in, in EBITDA uh, profit. So you know, it's not like end of the world, but it could definitely hurt them quite a bit. And it could affect, you know, the stock value quite a bit, um, which we'll get to when we talk a little bit more about some of the investment analysts uh, downgrading from buy to hold. But with that in mind, uh, you're still looking at a, a pretty big deal, eyes on the UFC in a certainly negative light, depending on how this case is ruled, and more information coming out about fighter contracts, the way things are done, strategy that the UFC implemented. But you can't expect the business model to change. There's nothing, and even you know UFC's lawyers have stated this, the business model is intact, no matter how this goes. Could be $1.6 billion, could be several hundred million, could be nothing. The business model is going to remain intact. Nothing is threatening the current model that they have. And moving forward, nothing is going to threaten it from this particular lawsuit. So that expectation needs to be set. If the plaintiffs win, get up $1.6 billion, there's going to be a bunch of people going, oh my gosh, like... This could be it. Like, this is the downfall of the UFC. Everything's changed, blah, blah, blah. No, it'll be a big blow to TKO. I'm sure they will have to do some restructuring. I'm sure some people will get laid off. I'm sure fighters will be cut, especially those that aren't drawing as much. But it's not a crazy game changer that we talked about being a possibility originally when class certification started. That, that's been abandoned. Injunctive relief could have changed the entire game. This will just hurt the UFC and its pocketbooks, which is still big, but you know it's the equivalent of some of the fines you've seen big banks eat all the time, right? Wells Fargo has, I don't know how many fines, massive fines they've eaten in the past several years. You know, a little bit before the pandemic and dur definitely during the pandemic, they've eaten just so much from doing some pretty shady things. It's just money. Their business model still remains intact. They haven't had to break anything up. They haven't been, you know, close to bankruptcy, anything like that. For them, it, it's a it's a huge fine for how they got to where they are now. So that's kind of what you're expecting here with TKO. That expectation needs to be set. And yes, there will be more mainstream media attention on it. I believe um, had a couple of, you know, things. A Hollywood Reporter put out an article. I would imagine as this ramps up. Uh, New York Times might get back into it or, you know, Rolling Stone or some, some more mainstream outlets covering it, but it's, it's not going to be this like earth shattering. Holy crap. Now the stock might react that way because that's what investors do, but it, it's not going to change their strategic advantages. It's not going to change their position in the market or erode their market 
power and position. Only thing it's going to do is erode their coffers, right? Like and make it harder for them to do, you know, uh, stock buybacks or dividends and things of that nature. Uh, but it, it's not going to hurt them in this crazy way. So that expectation needs to be set. Um, it will be a good look right at everything that's happened, um, you know, from 2010 to 2017. And again, some of the tactics that were used under both the Endeavor umbrella and uh, the old Zufa era, but it's, it's going to be a very interesting time. I will not be there the first week. I may be able to get there uh, starting the second week of the trial, but that's still kind of a long shot right now. Um, I have some family obligations I have to do first week, uh, but we'll, we'll see about the second week. But either way, I will be glued to it and I'll keep you updated with any other major updates. Set those expectations though. You're going to see some over-exaggerations from everybody. And you've got to be careful about what you read out there because this is big and it could hurt TKO, but it's not going to kill them at all. So let me know your thoughts on this. Let me know if you think plaintiffs have a chance of winning or not. I would love to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think, um, you know, UFC is going to have to pay here. If you were a juror, right, would you vote for against the UFC based on what you know, if you've been following this, let me know, because I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on all of this stuff. All right. Next thing we are going to discuss is some TKO stock news. Lots of things happening in the TKO world. Um, if you didn't hear the news already, although my guess is you did because it was all over the place, WWE has found a new home for their raw brand. Uh, they had previously found media rights for SmackDown to USA, uh, NXT to CW, and now Raw, Monday Night Raw, is going to Netflix for $5 billion over 10 years. Uh, this particular deal does have the option to terminate early, so within five years, Netflix could terminate it, or they could extend it hypothetically an extra 10 years, it sounds like, uh, for 20 years, which is wild to talk about. Um, along with this, you had Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, uh, join uh, TKO as a board member, getting a huge lease stock payout of $30 million or so, and the ownership to the name, The Rock, which will obviously yield a ton of money for him in terms of branding, things of that nature. Um, and he rung the opening bell at Wall Street. And it, it was a, it, it's a pretty big deal. And we'll radically shift WWE's business model because they're consolidating most, uh, we don't know about all, but most of their international rights into this Netflix deal. And it's all going to be on Netflix instead of having, you know, a UK deal, a deal in, uh, you know, France or wherever it's, it's all the WWE network is going away. It's instead going to all be on Netflix internationally. Here in the U.S., there's still a Peacock deal that runs through March of 2026, so they'll still have some uh, events in the library. But starting in 2025, uh, Raw will be on Netflix, which is a big step, too, on the Netflix side because that's going to be really their first foray into live programming, right? They're going to have a live weekly show. Uh, they've had a couple of live things, uh, a couple of comedy specials, I think a couple of, like, game show reunion things and a couple things here or there. I think they maybe did a NASCAR race at one point, um, but 
it's really a big step for them into the live space instead of, you know, the classic, here's a, you know, 10 episode uh, series and or a documentary or a movie. And, you know, you, you can either binge it all or we'll add an episode per week type thing. Instead, it's nope, it's live, live TV. And they're gearing that up to compete with, you know, other streaming services like Peacock, Apple, as things get more intense, Amazon, right? Um, who's got NFL. So big change there for Netflix, a uh, huge deal on the WWE side. Uh, Brandon Thurston um, over at WrestleNomics has done, you know, a lot of great reporting on this. If you're looking at the business side of WWE, he and John Pollock uh, are, are the authorities, I'd say, in regards to that. Uh, so check them out. But uh, it is a 1.3 media rights increase, uh, 1.3 times media rights increase at best, 1.2 to 1.3. A couple of different analysts, uh, Thurston, um, I forget the name of the guy over at Lightshed. He got the same numbers. I did a very brief overview of that, um, of, of looking at the numbers and, and checking that out. And, you know, Brandon's math all made sense to me. Based on what I was seeing, I would agree that that's probably correct, that it's a 1.2 to 1.3 times increase, which is lower than the 1.4 uh, they were aiming for. But I think the Netflix brand carries a lot of it. And, you know, Ari Emanuel on an interview with CNBC basically dodged a question and danced around it a little bit in terms of when asked, you know, what is the multiple compared to your previous raw rights deal? Uh, he said, uh, you know, it, it's in line with expectations. Um, they're going from 265 to 500 million, but um, a couple of, you know, variables there that it, check out Brandon's analysis on it if you want really good in-depth dive to that because he already did. <laughs> but with that in mind, um, that's still huge news for uh, the TKO brand. And in terms of how it affects the UFC, well, that's one of my predictions already uh, for the new year that I'm going to have to revise a little bit in terms of, I originally stated I thought that UFC and Raw were going to be on the same service, right? I thought that that made the most sense that, you know, they had until basically the end of the year to get a deal done, like around October. Um, the fact it's coming out now is pretty huge and nobody saw this coming. Amazon was looked at as an option according to John Orrend, as we talked about last week. But, uh, you know, nobody really expected Netflix to be the chosen service, especially uh, this early in the game, right? The like current um, media rights still go for the rest of the year. So that'll be interesting from a partnership standpoint, uh, how WWE and USA Network will react to that uh, and how Peacock will react to that because obviously Peacock um, is, you know, definitely under threat of losing their deal that comes up in 2026. And they might be okay with that, but, you know, writing's kind of on the wall, you'd assume, if you're Peacock. So that's a big move because they paid $5 billion, which is $500 million a year. Um, and, 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 Again, it's not like they get $500 million a year and every check. There's The deals are structured in a way that a lot of the money comes on the back end uh, for media rights deals. I would expect that's the case here. Uh, but um, in terms of just the deal itself and the length, it, it points to a couple of things. One, you know, I've talked about 
before how the media rights market has been, you know, getting worse, right? Uh, It's not a complete like meltdown, like we're not buying new shows. It's a huge issue uh, or we're paying basically what we're paying now or we're not buying it. Um, So it's not that bad, but it's, it's definitely lost its appetite compared to you know, the heyday of the 2010s, where it seemed like if you had, as streaming became more and more prominent, companies and shareholders were okay with losing plenty of money to acquire new subscribers, uh, so long as, you know, they had and were getting big rights deals. Um, you know, that was DAZN's whole plan to move into the US. It obviously didn't go the way they wanted, but they backed off. Um, but you, you know, ESPN Plus was not making a ton of money as a streaming service, still isn't. Um, ESPN's doing fine, but ESPN Plus is not, as far as I know, not turned the corner in terms of that profitability. Um, you have, you know, basically almost every streaming service out there not making money. Netflix, I think, is the lone exception where they've they've basically reached um, that pinnacle of like, okay, we're as more and more people cut cable Netflix should soon they're going to be the first to eclipse um cable in terms of like subscribers uh I think that's pretty clear but they're they're the leader and they're definitely um doing a lot better than most in terms of profitability with some of these streaming services all these places are trying to make streaming profitable but it's tough and even Netflix had to you know, bring in ads. They said they would never do ads and you could always share passwords. That was a huge thing they promised for a long time. And that has obviously gone the way of the dodo for them. Um, and they're talking about basically getting rid of, or they already have gotten rid of their lowest ad free tier because they want more people to watch ads because they want the ad revenue. And they've, they said in their earnings call, which happened this week, uh, actually the same day that TKO announced, uh, the rock coming on board as well as the raw deal, you know, Netflix had their earnings call and released their earnings at the end of the day. And they did extremely well, but you know, they Netflix talked about like, this is, we're not necessarily getting to the live sports space, which, you know, is, uh, I don't know about that. And then, you know, this is, you know, a, a place we can see a lot of growth is ad revenue and, and that, you know, it's not going to be immediate, but there's a huge amount of growth here. We will get the sponsors. We'll get these things going, et cetera. That's a massive deal. Um, and that's obviously been reflected. But paying $5 billion over 10 years, I doubt they're going to have the appetite to pay the UFC what it's asking. And I doubt the UFC is going to settle for um, you know, anything less than what Raw is getting. Right? Um, I mean, if you look at the average, um, you know, the AAV of the UFC deal, it's about, like, I think, 300 million-ish. And they've been trying to target, you know, uh, and it's just US rights, right? Not international. Um, they've been trying to target at least double that. And so when you're taking a look at Netflix as a suitor, right? Netflix got everything for WWE. The international deals is pretty big. It's not the same way where the UFC international rights deals are doubling and are a huge key piece in terms of their growth, where UFC is not going to want to give 
all of that up unless it's a really sweet deal. Um, it's and domestic is still king. Don't get me wrong, but um, you know UFC has been consistently going into markets and doubling their rights fees this past year, and they're not going to want to give that up and and take losses, especially when they think they can double their rights fees domestically. And I think it's going to be extremely hard for them to double their rights fees domestically. Don't get me wrong; I don't think they're going to actually pull off a two x. Um, increase. I just, I just don't see it given the market. I think WWE is kind of a sign of things to come with some of this stuff. Uh, NASCAR obviously got a sweet deal and so it's possible, but I, I think the appetite for it is going to be tough, especially with the NBA rights still out there, which is, you know, a far more valuable piece on the board. It, it's going to depend because if the NBA goes a particular way and then UFC becomes one of the new, you know, big shiny uh, deals left on the table, you never know if somebody's gonna, you know, kind of grab it as we've got to get something on our, uh, we got to get something on our platform that's going to bring in a lot of subscribers or keep a lot of subscribers. We need this. And we've, we've heard reports ESPN wants UFC. They're going to fight tooth and nail to keep UFC. But if I don't know that they have the appetite for two X, I don't know that anybody has the appetite for two X. And so with that in mind, I think Netflix is not the company to do it. I do not think um, they will pay, especially after this deal, they're going to pay, you know, another $6 billion over 10 years or whatever it is for just domestic UFC rights. I don't see that. Um, but I do think that the, when the Peacock deal is up in 2026, right, March 2026, um, and with UFC, the rights go through 2025. So right now they're the in the exclusive negotiation period with ESPN, but then, you know, they'll really come up and for open negotiations next year. I do think you get a bundle of what Peacock is offering in the UFC together. I think that makes sense. Um, eventually, I see, you know, more of the main brands like Raw or SmackDown getting sold with UFC rights. But right now, I think the library rights, uh, potentially PLE rights, which is like their pay-per-views um, being sold together, that would make a lot of sense just in terms of, you know, if you're thinking about the, from a operations perspective, right, you'd kind of want to have similar people do pay-per-views for both UFC and WWE because that allows for you to reduce your workforce and just have one, you know, cuts the overhead and just allow one group to control both. So if they're both on the same network, then great. You are able to, you know, streamline that, but it, it still may not happen because I, I think one thing the raw deal reiterates and the UFC has always been this way, but uh, you know, WWE is, is still in that suit is that I think this, this just reiterates, they're going to go for the top dollar deal. I think it will sweeten the pot to have both of those things and get UFC closer to two X. I still don't think they'll get two X, but they're going to go for the top dollar deal. I think that's money above everything, right? It's not about strategic partnership. Yes. They've had a great relationship with ESPN. Yes. It's ESPN has, has, built their business, you know, and, and UFC is a cornerstone of that and let them have a lot of leeway as we'll talk about in the next segment, um, especially recently on certain things. But 
UFC is going to go after what gives the most money and TKO is going to support that, especially with raw, not hitting this, not hitting the increase that they wanted. Right. Um, they got enough splash with the Netflix name and stock soared, right? Went up, I think at its peak was like 20%, 15. It went up to 95, um, from 77. So pretty huge jump. Um, Settled not that high. It settled uh, around twelve percent ish or ten percent ish, but um, and now is is sitting a little bit lower the the past day or so. But that being said, right, obviously you have new things come out, uh, and um, it, it's still a big enough move that Wall Street likes it because Wall Street again always about the future. They are not a how are your fundamentals. They don't care about fundamentals. If they care about fundamentals then TKO would be so massively undervalued. It's not funny. And that's what a lot of analysts, uh, you know, say, right? Like speaking of, of valuing the stock, most analysts have a strong buy on this. Uh, they think it's pretty undervalued as an asset. They believe it's going to continue to grow price targets ranging from like 115 to 130 in some cases. And so if you're reading those analyst reports and look at the fundamentals and you're seeing, the price at like 77 or now 87 or 88, wherever it landed. I mean, that's like, well, what the heck? Of course I want to buy. But current price always reflects short-term and sometimes long-term, but most times short-term futures. And like by short-term, I mean like 12 months, 24 months. Um, occasionally long-term. In this case with the raw deal, I mean, longer-term longer because you know you have guaranteed revenue coming in, right? Which is, again, another big RE Emanuel play that we saw Endeavor do um, with the UFC is, is okay, it might not be able to increase the way we want every couple of years. And, you know, we may be leaving some money on the table depending on where the market is, but we also ha now have 10 years of guaranteed revenue. Five, technically, if Netflix backs out and things don't go well at all. But I mean, you now have, okay, this is steady revenue. Really doesn't matter if, you know, we're hot and, and pay-per-view buys are up and ratings are going crazy. Um, they can be terrible. They can be abysmal. It doesn't matter because we've got at least five years. Like, and I'm sure if they cut it early, there's probably some payment that has to be made if Netflix decides to terminate early, but we've got at least five years, you know, probably closer to 10 easy. Um, just in terms of with how hot the product is, Right now, I think even on the WWE side, even if it cooled, I can't imagine it would cool so much that Netflix is like, oh, we're going to you know, get rid of it here. Um, so providing other things don't get in the way, like allegations and things of that nature, um, you know, at least five years, but probably closer to 10. And and that's just guaranteed money. $500 million a year average. That's that's big. That's, that's huge. You know, $5 billion. That's hard to ignore. Um, and if Netflix loves it and it becomes a cornerstone, right? If a bunch of people that do not sign up for Netflix or have not signed up for Netflix, but now this is, you know, here in 2025, subscribers go through the roof. It becomes a cornerstone similar to what happened with ESPN Plus. That's going to be really big too. Because that means Netflix will fight to keep it. So it, it's, it's pretty big there. Um, circling back to evaluations, another thing I wanted to talk about, right, was... Uh, we had a couple of investment analysts, um, Jaguar 
analysts, I believe, uh, is is one, and then uh, TD Cohen, uh, both downgrading from buys to essentially what are holds. So it's not saying like you got to sell this like right away, uh, but um, it, it's it's kind of saying like, oh, you know, uh, we don't quite trust this, uh, and we we don't think we want to see how things play out. They might easily change their rating based on the Netflix news, right? Um, but when their ratings came out, a huge reason why they rated it as a hold was the antitrust lawsuit for the UFC and media rights too. But the UF, the antitrust lawsuit being the biggest risk factor and then stating, right, that you know if things go poorly, where they lose the antitrust lawsuit, uh, it could result in them having to pay fighters more and, you know, essentially change their business model. Like they, they won't be able to, you know, scoop up all these great fighters and all this stuff. And I believe the price target on TD Cohen was $92 or something. So if, if they still have the hold right now, you probably should have sold, uh, the other day when it spiked that type of thing. Although again, with that type of news, I'm sure the analysts will, um, at least reevaluate the rating. They may keep it at hold, but they're going to take a look at it again. But that downgrade, right? And you had Wolf Research do similar uh, stuff here. Um, those downgrades and some of the the risks that they're pointing out, right? First of all, if they lose the lawsuit, yes, it's a big hit. Um, it would cause the stock to fall, obviously, and it would cause issues in terms of stock buybacks and dividends, which they call out as risks. And those are valid risks. Those two are valid risks. And shareholders love stock buybacks and dividends because that increases the stock. Stock buybacks increases the price of the stock almost every time, uh, pretty much guaranteed to. And dividends, right? If you hold more and more shares, you get paid $3 a share. That gives you just money that you can either reinvest in, you know, TKO stock or in other things. And so you, you're getting paid to just hold a piece of paper, that imaginary piece of paper at this point. But yeah, so I mean, dividends are, are nice. A lot of portfolios, as I brought up, I think last week or a month ago, a lot of portfolios of people are, you know, just getting to a certain amount of wealth and buying a bunch of dividend stocks and then using those dividends to kind of live off of or help invest more and, and build their wealth. So Dividends are, are the safe, like, okay, I like this stock. I like getting paid for it. It's great. That's, you know, that's not a bad thing. Um, it, it, dividend stocks are pretty good. Growth stocks are one thing. They're more risky. Dividends are the safer option that, you know, are the more blue chip stocks historically that people talk about. Um, so yes, this does, this antitrust lawsuit does affect that ability if they lose, for sure. And of course, it's going to send the stock to fall. However, it's not going to fundamentally change things as they've stated. You're not going to have the UFC not be able to keep fighters under these long contracts. We've already seen the sunset clause pretty much get negated and go away. Uh, and they still hold all the cards here and there's no injunctive relief on the table. So even if they pay money out the wazoo, it's, you know, can't have John Jones versus Francis Ngannou and PFL in a year. That's not going to happen. Uh, can't have, you know, Conor McGregor just top ship or Adesanya. Those aren't things that are possible in this regard. So um, that's not happening. 
So that's not really a, a correct risk. And then doubling fighter pay or paying fighters more, that's also not needed, right? Like maybe, maybe to hedge from future lawsuits, they start to up fighter pay and bump them, uh, you know, from, you know, Dana White contender series style to like what their actual minimums stated would be like 12 or 12 and 12 or 16 or something. Sure. Maybe, but they're not going to double. I believe in, in both analyses, they both were like, well, fighter pay could essentially double and this could cause a huge issue. Like there's, they're not going to double fighter pay. And it's and if they do bump up fighter pay, they may bump up on, you know, entering level fighter pay. They're not going to bump up everybody's pay. That's not a thing. They're not going to increase fighter cost by two X because they had to pay a bunch of money in a lawsuit. That doesn't, that's not going to happen. Sure. They may pay more if they want to really like nip this in the bud and they're okay with it. I'm sure there'd be a risk analysis done right on that, of um, risk benefit analysis, but cost benefit analysis. That's the word I want. Um, but it's not going to be this like, Oh, all of a sudden you've got a ton of money lost where they can't buy dividends or can't buy stock buybacks to do dividends. Fighter pay is doubled and fighters can go everywhere. No. And I believe one of the analyses said that could, uh, the one of the analysis said like, Oh, that could cause the stock to drop 55%. That's absurd. That's absurd. A lot of things could cause the stock to drop to 55% if they all happen back to back or if business started to slow, but business is strong very strong amongst WWE and UFC right now. And yes, they both have pretty wild risks associated with them, uh, with the Vince McMahon lawsuit, which again, we'll get into here in a minute. And the, uh, uh, antitrust lawsuit against the UFC, but their business models are very much intact and they're, they're only making more money. Right. Even even though it's only a 1.2, 1.3 increase in terms of raw going to Netflix for WWE, that's still a big deal. And UFC, I st- I imagine is going to still get 1.5 to 1.7, even with the market changing as it has. Right. Like I I, I can't imagine, even with the market softening, you're going to have them not get over 1.5. There'd have to be some other key to it. So. Or the market would really have to downturn, which is possible, you know, right? Media is, is a little bit rough, lots of layoffs going on. So, you know, you never know. Um, but I I think they'll get minimum 1.5. And that's still a huge increase. So they're fine, fundamentally. UFC in particular is crazy fine. WWE is also still very, very fine, fundamentally. They're still both very profitable. This isn't going to cause a crazy collapse investors may overreact and there may, may be you know a, a run where everybody's trying to get out of it sure that can happen all the time but they're they're too strong fundamentally i can't see a 55 percent collapse i just can't i can't see it um and now I, I mean i'm not do not take my word as financial law if you're if you're trading any of this stuff off of me you got issues <laughs> this is just informative, but, um, yeah, I, I can't see it collapsing in that regard. And that's pretty much most of the TKO stock news. Um, one or two other things to add, and we'll, we'll talk about the Vince McMahon lawsuit, um, in the next, 
next section here. But uh, in terms of Endeavor, Silver Lake uh, did, you know, there are reports now that came out this week that Silver Lake is going to present in the next couple of weeks a buyout plan, minority buyout plan for Endeavor, which is big because again, they own Endeavor, they're 71%, they control it pretty much. Um, but they are looking to buy it out and they're probably going to take a profit, right? That that was the thing that stock sent the stock shooting up before. Um, it kind of faded a little bit because there were reports like maybe it's not imminent, but now there's a report out then the next couple of weeks and that's from the sports business journal. So I trust them next couple of weeks, they're going to, you know, present a plan for how that would work. So providing that all goes smoothly, I imagine you see Endeavor shoot up and then get removed. Um, but I mean, taking them private makes sense if they're able to pay out, you know, to the minority shareholders, what they want to pay out. And, you know, I, I could easily see that happening. Uh, CAA recently did that. One of, um, R. Emanuel's most hated rivals uh, got a huge sum from it. Uh, and obviously Endeavor stock hasn't been, you know, doing as well as they hoped. Uh, it's been struggling from the get-go, but lately it's bounced back a bit. And my guess is it will go even higher after um, this deal is announced. But yeah, Silver Lake is almost certainly taking Endeavor private and looks like it'll happen pretty soonish. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that and let you know when and if that does happen. Uh, with that in mind, that's pretty much all the TKO stock stuff. Let me know your thoughts on this. Let me know if you think that some of this analysis that I said is unsound, you agree with, right? If you think TKO stock could collapse, lose half of its value. Um, if you think the raw deal is good, if, if you think I'm wrong about the UFC media rights, I'd love to hear all of that. But uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, I think there's a lot going on for TKO and it's going to be a very interesting couple months uh, for this company without a doubt. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about TKO brand image, um, and how it could affect the stock, right. And, and affect them going forward. Both the UFC and WWE have pretty major, I don't know if you want to call them scandal. One is a scandal on the WWE side. I don't know if you want to call the antitrust lawsuit a scandal, but it's it's certainly a negative PR item uh, for the UFC. Uh, both happening around the same time, so this is not great for TKO as a whole. But we've particularly seen between the um, Vince McMahon lawsuit and Sean Strickland's comments at UFC 297 that there's been some backlash to how both... UFC and WWE have handled things. Um, this is recording before the Royal Rumble, so I'm sure there will be, if there's a press conference for the Royal Rumble, this is almost certainly going to get asked. We'll see if it is allowed to get asked. They might say, like, we're not answering questions on that. Who knows? Um, but I, I can't imagine that won't be brought up or talked about a little bit more. And, you know, TKO has given a statement regarding Mr. McMahon saying they're handling it internally. They take these accusations serious, all this stuff. Uh, with the Sean Strickland comments, um, you had an interesting response, I would say, from the UFC and, and President Dana White, where first you had Sean Strickland go after MMA fighting reporter Alexander Kaylee, um, who essentially, uh, you know, asked Strickland about some of his comments he made about the LG, uh, LGBT. QT 
plus. Sorry if I get that wrong. I really apologize. But that community, right? Um, LGBTQ plus community. Um, and Strickland's response, he laid into him, said some said some pretty inflammatory things. Um, came out wearing a shirt that said, you know, women should be making sandwiches, that a gun in your hand type of thing. Like pretty, you know misogynistic shirt and uh you know some definitely some statements bigotry type statements that got some news coverage uh the interesting thing i found about this is when john pollock followed up with dana white right dana kind of went after him and said you know i don't put fighters on a leash which is just him latching onto a particular wording like pollock did nothing wrong he followed up like he should have and Dana found a word to kind of spin it, which is what he does. It doesn't matter what John had said. I mean, Dana was going to kind of spin it around and be like, this, we never censor fighters, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of got a big roar of approval from a lot of the far-right fan base uh, that makes up the UFC's customers, especially their hardcore customers. I think it was the Nelk Boys right? Put up a YouTube video like Dana destroys woke journalists or some garbage. Um, lots of, uh, of stuff in that regard where I was like, Oh, like, okay. Uh, and they leaned into it. Right. And this isn't shocking. If you've followed the UFC the past, you know, seven, eight years, especially with the rise of Trump, who has been a friend of David and White's forever. Um, they've really leaned into their right and far right consumers because those consumers are are willing to spend money on the UFC and that's a target that they want to hit. Now, a big thing that was brought up uh in media circles but also a couple other places, right, is that, you know, 10 years ago, for those of you that are newer to the sport, and I remember when this came out, uh there was a code of conduct introduced, right? Um you had a whole thing around Matt Mitrione's comments uh when he was still in the UFC uh, right. I think he got fined yet. Yeah. Nate Diaz being threatened to be fined over, uh, using a, a gay slur. I know there was a huge uproar when Michael Bisbing used a slur, um, against Luke Rockhold after his title win, uh, which Michael apologized for. Right. And again, th- that was during that weird time where if you remember, I mean, the office is a cult show, right? Cult classic. And you go back and watch office episodes, and there's a reason they say he couldn't make it today because you look at some of those jokes, right? Things like, you know, there are certain words being thrown around that were just casually just in the zeitgeist still. And you could just say them all the time. And, and it was just a normal thing. There was no backlash. There was no like, Hey, don't say that. It was just kind of like, Oh, well, this is just types of jokes we make. And so it's one of those things where during that time though, in, in the early 2010s, UFC took the complete opposite stance. They were very much a like, hey, we, you know, we, we stand for respect here. We stand for all these other things. Um, you know, we have a code of conduct that an athlete must adhere to. Uh, and if you don't, you could get fined. You could get fired. It's a whole thing. And and that code of conduct technically still exists. I believe fighters still have to sign it and go through it so that, you know, at any point, the UFC can pull the trigger and say, yeah, we're releasing you due to a code of conduct violation. But they don't have to enforce it. And Dana, of course, being the promoter he is, is always going to lean into 
opportunities like Strickland because it gets more views. It gets more press, right? Gets more people either hating Sean and wanting him to get knocked out or liking Sean and wanting him to win. It's Colby Covington's whole gimmick, which is a gimmick, right? And part of the reason he pressed that gimmick to a point where people were like, who cares if it's a gimmick, you're a terrible person, et cetera. The amount of people I saw, you know, say that about Colby Covington is a lot. Uh, but I mean, it worked for him. It, it got him the notoriety and attention that he wanted. It got him title fights. He got to sit on the shelf for three years and get a title fight immediately, right? Like it's not a, it, it's, it, it's clearly worked in some regards. And you've got Trump coming out with, you know, flanked by Kid Rock and Tucker Carlson and things on, on pay-per-views. Like, I mean, this is, they're clearly leaning into the far right base that makes up a fair amount of their consumers. They've, I'm sure they've done data analysis on this, regardless of Dana White's personal views and all this other stuff. Like, I'm sure they've done analysis on this and said, great, these are target consumers who are spending the most money on our product. Like, we've got to appease them. I'm sure if it went the other way, they would do the exact opposite. In fact, I mean, if you're looking at some of the comments that were made, I forget by which fighter, um, but talk, uh, one of the fighters uh, at 297 definitely spoke about Israel-Palestine stuff, and that was definitely cut from the YouTube upload of the post-fight speech. And there's been the whole flag debacle about like flags are allowed and then they're not allowed. Now they're allowed. Like it's all just depends. All just depends on current circumstances. I cannot stress this enough. Dana's job first and foremost is promotion. He's going to say things where he contradicts himself quite a bit or changes his mind quite a bit because that's what he needs to do as a promoter to keep the fan base and the promotion in the best light of their target consumers. So he's going to keep doing that stuff. Beyond moral, yes or no's. And I'm not, I, I want to make it clear. This is not, I'm not talking about this from a moral standpoint. I never do. I always look at it from a business only lens as much as I possibly can. And from this particular standpoint, they're leaning into it because they're looking at customer acquisition. Now in WWE's case, right? Completely different scandal with some of these horrific horrific allegations, uh, which I mean, you, there's a presumption of innocence in the court of law, but not in the court of public opinion. And if you look at the filing, which I don't recommend if you have a weak stomach for some of the things that are mentioned, um, I only read through part of it and then I was like, yeah, that's enough. I'm good. <laughs> but I've seen clips and people talking about it. Uh, it, I mean, these are horrific and, and pretty like terrible allegations. And they pretty much implicate, at least in the story that was broken, they pretty much implicate Brock Lesnar because they mentioned a former UFC champion, which I don't think Kane managed to do this stuff in 2022. Uh, and I, so pretty sure, you know, it was probably Brock, um, who had some of this stuff go on. Um, but I mean, that's a, a completely different type of PR nightmare that WWE is going to have to navigate. And TKO too, right? He's even though it says on 
TKO site, like, oh, he hasn't actually been involved. Like Vince McMahon is executive chairman of the board with a little asterisk. He hasn't actually been involved in the board since September, 2023, which is just weird, right? I think it's like, keep his name there, but also like cover yourself in terms of like, he's not actually involved. Um, but you know, he's this, this whole allegation set off the initial investigation, um, right into McMahon and WWE, which then they handled internally. They kept, you know, basically NDAs and all this stuff. This was the initial one that happened. Now, uh, you've got Ms. Grant fighting the allegations, uh, or I guess not really not fighting the allegations. Now you have Ms. Grant, who is, is the woman who brought the allegations and originally it was under an NDA now saying the NDA was broken due to stop payments. And, you know, now she's basically filing a lawsuit under sex trafficking and abuse rather than like, you know, broken NDA. And no matter how this plays out, right, this is a, a very bad look for WWE, with especially with the way they've handled Vince McMahon, right, where he left, he then came back, then he left again, all this stuff. And it's it's going to be much more of a leaning into probably the left type of audience, right? For these types of allegations, you're not going to have, you're not going to have them come out and say like, McMahon is a hero and this is BS, blah, blah, blah. I mean, McMahon's own representatives have essentially repeated that fact, but you're not going to have, um, I think, a a similar response of the company backing or turning into this as the UFC did with Strickland, which I, I don't think UFC would do that if similar allegations happened on their side. They might ignore it, but I, I don't know that they would turn into it, right? Um, but they're going to have to figure out a way to either clean house or, or spin this PR around quite a bit. They've already basically distanced them the distanced themselves from McMahon saying like, he doesn't really do anything here. He's not running things. Um, but I can't imagine he's not fired as chair of the board. I can't imagine he's not completely, you know, let go as well as some of the other executives named in this. Cause it wasn't just McMahon. It was several other people at WWE. I'm assuming you're going to see an internal investigation with a lot of people being let go. Um, maybe some more high profile names depending on who it all affects, but it, it's a far different, different issue still one of the worst things that could happen and, and brand wise right and so you've got both of your companies under tko now dealing with these brand fights um uh, of of you know bigotry on one side being accused and uh being accused of, of sexual terrible like sexual assault plus more uh, on just horrific accusations on the other and, you know, this is a company that contracts with Disney for Media Rights Group, right? ESPN is under the Disney umbrella for the UFC and, you know, USA Network and CW. Now Netflix, a brand new deal with relationships starting out. If I'm a Netflix exec and I see this, this is not the thing you want to see after announcing a major 10-year deal with your new partner, right? Like, this is the last type of thing you want to see where it's like, well, that's not great. Now, it could be worse. It could be like someone currently still, it could be like a Nick Khan instead of Vince McMahon thing or somebody that's still that's at TKO and, and much more involved currently where it could be a huge problem. Um, but it, it's still not good. And the perception from the outside is certainly uh, 
one that's going to raise a lot of scrutiny from the mainstream media and a lot of um, scrutiny from particular entities, right, that need to protect their own brand, right? Your partnerships are where this, this really comes into play for TKO. Because the last thing you need as you're trying to renegotiate UFC rights, uh, they got the raw deal done and announced, so that was good on WWE's part, but they still are going to have the Peacock stuff come up, right? The last thing they need is for really bad PR and really bad, you know, stuff turning away potential partners and then using that as part of an excuse to either lowball for rights or to walk away because they just don't want to be involved in it. And we'll see how this all plays out. This is all pretty new on the WWE side. On the UFC side, it's already mostly blown over, which is not surprising, right? This is how it works, especially Strickland losing um, at 297. I think if Strickland wins, it could snowball into an issue. But now that he's lost and and Dana White essentially said, hey, we're not uh, we're not going to you know run it back, even though it was a very, very close match and he wasn't available for media questions after the fight. I think that was a strategic move by the UFC. They pretty much wrapped up the Strickland issue. Uh, although it's not an isolated incident, so they're going to have to keep an eye on it. But for WWE, this is now a huge thing they've got to deal with. And protecting your brand in that regard uh, is going to be a struggle and could easily affect their their partnerships and their rights and and the stock, right? Even if it doesn't actually affect that stuff, investors will get spooked and run off. Saw TKO stock when it was announced, have a kind of short dip recover and then I think end lower. Like that's that's the type of stuff that can hurt you. Part of their initial drop in stock and DKO stock was from some of the allegations, Vince McMahon selling a bunch and all this other stuff, but then some of the allegations being put out there. This is not going to help things. So TKO needs to turn around their brand image a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing a couple things out here and there that helps polish their brand a bit, as well as kind of nip these two things in the bud real quick. UFC, I think they've done that with Strickland. WWE, they've got to figure this out ASAP. And remember, WWE stuff affects UFC now. That's why we're talking about it. That, that's, it's not just like, hey, this has now become a wrestling MMA podcast. It's like, no, this is because they are in this together. If WWE, if they sink or the UFC sinks, vice versa, like the other is, is in trouble with them. That's the important thing to remember in all this. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but they desperately need to start fixing that stuff moving forward because it's going to hurt them eventually. If this doesn't, something else will. Um, wouldn't be shocked if this doesn't hurt them either. But yeah, it, it's two different worlds. One main company. It's hard to juggle two brands like that. WWE, especially being more kid-friendly, or was, right, till more recently, and still kind of is, and then UFC being what it is, it's very hard to juggle this, and this negative PR is not good. They've got to they've got to do something to turn it around. What that will be, I don't know, but expect something that is good PR for both of them soon. I would. All right, I'm going to go through these last two things quickly. They were going to be quick anyway, but we'll, we'll speed it up a little bit. Um, Next two things we need to talk about first is Kayla Harrison getting signed by the UFC. A big shock announcement. Um, nobody really saw that coming. You had PFL say that Kayla Harrison had one more fight on her deal, and now she is scheduled to fight Holly Holm at UFC 300, which is hypothetically a big fight on paper, right? Um, a lot of MMA media reacted to this pretty positively. 
lot of fans were were shocked by this, hardcore fans. But here's one thing I just want to get out there and I'm curious about and curious to get your opinion on. While Harrison is certainly been touted as a superstar, right? When we look at the metrics of what Harrison has done, she's moved the needle a little bit on PFL stuff, but not to a level of like, you know, we're talking 300K viewership or if she's there and 120 if she's not, right? She's been on PFL fights during the seasons um, or in main, main events where she's bumped the numbers a little bit, but not, you know, still episodes for a particular season have mostly remained in line on average. They haven't been affected by her presence to the point of noticeable, really noticeable um, positive influence or negative, right? That could be an option, but she's not a negative draw to them. She's definitely a, either a, you know, not really in a, affecting ratings or a slight, slight positive. And, and all you have to do is just look back through the seasons, right? Like the episodes kind of maintain based on a particular episode, they maintain the same type of average throughout. Uh, this past season, when you've had some bigger names from the UFC come over there, you've seen the occasional bump based on like Anthony Pettis headlining, or, or I think Shane Burgos's uh, headline did pretty solid, but you know, not Harrison specifically. And then when you get to the pay-per-view fights, right, where she headlined, you know, the reports from that are that did abysmal, right? And I don't know the exact numbers and maybe they did okay. Um, but the reports on that were not one to tout as like a resounding success. And I want to be clear here again, because this gets asked every time I'm not rooting for PFL to fail. I want PFL to succeed. I'm just talking about a report in terms of Kayla Harrison's buys. In fact, if I quickly look it up, uh, let's see, let's see what we got. Uh, you know, I looking at, this, I, yeah, I mean, there doesn't even show up, doesn't even show up in terms of, you know, like, oh, like X amount of buys if you do a quick search. Um, it's just, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and PFL is like, everybody was happy with pay-per-view debut results. And this is from my buddy Drake Riggs over at MMA Mania. Um, so PFL was happy with it. Uh, but, and and you like, you know, you had Race F, Hotel, MMA Junking, everybody was happy with it. You got to start somewhere. And yeah, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the starting out, right? Like, I mean, it's it's not hard to be profitable on pay-per-view or at least break even, right? Depends, but it's not that. But I mean, it, this wasn't some resounding success if she, she brought in 150K, 200 buys, right? Anything of that nature. Um, I believe it was one Wrestling Observer Newsletter who put, who reported it was like 10,000 buys or something. Um but you know, it, it's it is what it is. Um, and, and in terms of bloody elbow, here has you know, pay per view stinker, all this other stuff. Uh, so it's it's one of those things where it's hard to be on pay per view, right? B Bellator, um, Bellator tried this several times, and it's it's hard to be in the pay-per-view market unless you've you've got that market dominance because it's about getting casual viewers. It's about getting a ton of casual viewers and it's very hard to get that going. So, you know, it's, it's not a knock against P PFL in that regard. 
but tying that back to Harrison, right? It's not that, oh my gosh, Kayla Harrison is on something we have to watch. And a lot of media and people have, have kind of lifted her up and put her in this position of like, man, she is like the next cyborg. She's the next Rousey. She gets compared to Rousey all the time. And PFL did an amazing job marketing her that regard. Did that, like you've got to give props to PFL or PFL's PR and marketing team in terms of positioning her as you know the new Rousey and all that stuff. And then she lost to uh, Pacheco, Larissa Pacheco, and all that stuff. But they've still done a great job like maintaining her aura f- for what it was, especially with the bounce back against Aspen Ladd. Um, and so it, it's they've especially in the hardcore circle. And media, MMA media is, you know, touts her as this huge, like, oh, she's going to be a star. But there's been no real movement there that you've seen. Like, there, there's nothing I can point to that says, like, yes, like, she's going to be there. What I have seen is since her signing, social media metrics are up for her compared to others, some other fights. I will say that, right? So I think she's got more drawing power and interest than your average off the street or, like, a really good, you know, prospect right? We're not, you've got plenty of amazing people coming in, um, who should garner more than they do, but again, don't necessarily until they get on the UFC stage. Uh, but do I think, you know, Cedric, uh, Duve, who went to PFL recently, do, do I, who sold out PFL in, in France in like 20 minutes or whatever, do I think she's got his star power? No, not, not even close in my opinion. Um, and I am curious to see how this turns out. Because especially against Holm, right? Who Holm still has some drawing power and rub from beating Rousey. That's why she's in all of these positions. Everybody's asking why Holly Holm main event. Why? It's because she has a big drawing power in the casual female demographic, which is a market that UFC is trying to go after. So while we're sitting there watching, why are we watching a Holly Holm for the 10th time this year? She's pulling in the right, social media numbers and demographic numbers, the UFC is like, yep, put her there, put her there. It's all data-driven. I'm telling you this. It's not that just randomly like, oh yeah, give Holly whatever. Data already, you know, in emails talked to, that just got released about Holly's contract, talked about like being mad at Holly for certain things. No, they're not. It's not because they love Holly. It's because she's pulling in the right stuff. So I think the thought and hope here is, which makes sense, is you get Holly in against, Kayla and you hope that Kayla just destroys home and then starts to build on that female demographic and become a new Rousey, right? That's their, that's their dream scenario. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's their dream scenario. But depending on how the fight goes, right. And this is Harrison's first fight at 135, and she was fighting at 155 and cut, you know, and fought at 145 once, I think like that's a, that's a tough ask and we'll see. We'll see how it goes, but that's, I don't see her as being an immediate, I'm on, I'm on UFC, I'm a superstar type deal, right? I'm, I'm, I'm on the biggest platform now, I'm going to be a superstar. I don't see that yet. I don't think there's any indication that she'll move a needle for a while. If she beats home decisively and then starts to work her way up, maybe, but Ban- Wyndham's band weight is also pretty tough, um, just in terms of gaining star power, because there's not a ton there. There's enough legacy like Nunez hinted coming out of retirement. That would be a big boost. Sure. But this is the type of thing where it's going to take some time to build. She's not this major superstar that you see 
a lot of MMA media put out there like, oh my gosh, it's Kayla Harrison. Like, yeah, maybe in hardcore circles, but she's not, she's not drawing outside of that right now. She could, but it's not a wow. Like we signed someone who's already pulling in stuff. Let me know your thoughts on that. Um, let me know if you think Kayla is going to help move the needle on this. I mean, she, UFC 300 is going to be hard to you know say who who moved what where. Um, but let me know if you think she's going to immediately start to get some star rub and you know go on to do things. Uh, but right now, I, I just I don't see it. All right. Last but not least, we are talking PFL Bellator updates. Uh, they had their Chance vs. Champs press conference, uh, fight going down, card going down uh, February 24th. It's a very awesome idea, interesting idea, something Bellator has done a couple times with Ryzen uh, that people have always clamored for. It's, it's pretty great. I think I think PFL versus Bellator, when they were two separate companies doing this, would have always garnered a fair amount of like interest, especially from hardcore and some non-hardcore fans be like, Oh, okay. It's not the UFC against another promotion. That obviously is the one where it's like, Whoa, this could change everything. And UFC would never go for it. But, um, but it's a cool concept. Uh, it's going to happen every year, according to Peter Murray, who also stated, um, at the conference that they're going to do uh, four main franchises, right? The PFL main tournament, uh, the regional, scenes where you're going to have your PFL Europe. They're doing PFL Mena. There's going to be six of those regional areas. And then you can kind of, depending on you winning those championships, you can go into, uh, the, um, the main PFL tournament that we all talk about. Uh, it's going to be half Bellator, half PFL fighters, um, at least to start, we'll see where that all goes, but it, it's a cool concept, right? Called it the Champions League, but it's basically a like, okay, you win your region, you can get into the main tournament, and you can win the whole thing and become a, a mainstay, and then do champs versus champs. Um, Thirty global events, a lot of them seem to be in Europe. They're going to go to Australia. They're going to go a couple other places. I'm assuming they have the World Series of Fighting lawsuit behind them at this point. I haven't heard anything more on that, but I believe it got resolved last I checked, at least or like settled outside of um, outside of court, and so going to do that. And they're going to have champs versus champs every year where current Bellator and current PFL champs go head to head in kind of like a kickoff to the season. It's very cool concept. Um, I like it. I think it is going to be more digestible to the regular sport, casual sports fan who wants more types of sports and is new to MMA. I think that's a good, good base entry, right? Um, instead of marketing to someone who may want to see a particular fighter fighter, you're, pitching a model that they can hypothetically get behind, which has been the PFL's whole pitch the whole time, right? Um, that's really what they've been trying to do. But the most interesting part to me is the discussion around the regional scene. Um, I think that's a big deal, especially in the MENA region, um, in Europe and some other places where Bellator tried to do some of this, right, with their European series. But UFC certainly has a stranglehold on the global market and is still going to be far and away the biggest player in pretty much any of their spaces. But one of their Achilles heels in market share, and I, I don't know that I would call this Achilles heel because it's not that much of a, not much of a problem, but uh, an opening to take away or erode part of the UFC's market share is in regional promotion, 
right? The UFC, regardless of being this global powerhouse and going, you know, to host events around the world, they generally only do events, you know, uh, international events, right? And places they might, they might show up once a year, more likely once every other year in a particular area, right? I think UK has kind of become more of a spot where they're, they're showing up regularly. Um, France had been a spot that they were going to, and they, I think they will still go to just because of gone. They, they don't have, uh, you know, Duvet, which is, is wild. That's a whole nother story. Cause I think that would be a huge, huge push for them and something that they would have gone. PFL will certainly do, you know, is doing PFL Europe, France, and we'll, we'll push that market hard with him. Um, but I mean, you had, yeah, you had what Mbappe show up for one of his fights. I think like that's, that's a real big deal. Um, but it's getting into, and that's actually a great example, right? Getting into these markets where UFC shows up maybe once or once a year, once every other year, and they don't have a clear star to put on it. And then building a star, getting someone like Cedric to, um, to be the face of that region that allows you to get a lot more fan interest in that region into your promotion and start to take some of those casual fans away because they're going to be like, Oh, well, Cedric's over here like that. I know he's from my country. Right? Like it's the same type of thing in, in wrestling, right? A little bit with new Japan where you got new Japan pro wrestling, which is not really known in the States and not huge amongst, I mean, hardcores. Yes, but not amongst the casual fan base, but in Japan, I mean, new Japan pro wrestling is, is pretty massive right? In terms of a wrestling company, like it's, that's the wrestling company. And so building out these regional tournaments and then going in and taking those pieces of market share that allows you to take away what was previously just the UFCs because there was no one else there. and, And there was, it was a scarcity issue of, okay, we want MMA. Here's a big MMA company. That's not regional. Great. We're going to go watch it. That's where I'm going to put my money. Instead, it's like, oh, this is a, you know, competitor to the UFC. It's it's not UFC, but maybe they're not even as big as UFC. But they've got some former UFC guys. They've got a name I recognize, and from my country, like, okay, I'm going to go to here, and that, you know, depending on disposable income and how much of an MMA fan they are, they're going to go to both, right, or pay for both. But for some of those casual people, that's a way to erode and take some of that share. So I think that's a very smart plan on PFL's part is these regional, regional, uh, tournaments and interests, right. And hosting events there regularly. Like if you do a tournament every year in the region, that's going to start to build your fan base a little bit more compared to UFC coming and, and leaving every other year. Right. Uh, now, this in no way is going to erode it to a point where it will probably hurt the UFC. They they may not even see a decrease, right? Because the scarcity of UFC being there and them being the biggest promotion will always bump them up in a certain regard. Uh, maybe it affects some of their ticket sales on in some of their gates, but I, so far it hasn't, right? From PFL Europe and Bell, what Bellator is trying to do. And it might be more of a like, okay, the market isn't saturated there. So you can cut out and carve part of this piece before the UFC completely saturates. It might take away future UFC business, but I don't know that it will hurt current UFC business there. So, 
anyone thinking like, oh my gosh, like this could start to erode. Like that's not at all what I'm saying. It's going to erode their potential. That's how I should phrase it. It erodes their potential market share rather than their current. I don't, I don't think their current is going to slip in any of these regions, but the leftover potential market there, you could have PFL Bellator scoop up, which is big for PFL Bellator because that's how you grow your brand. And that's how you, that's how you moderately to well succeed against a behemoth like the USC. That's how you have to do it. So that's the one that interested me. Again, the model itself will be interesting to some sports fans. We'll see how, uh, how much traction it gets. I know with sports betting, that's, that's another way to get, uh, get more people involved. And I'm sure this model will lend to that a little bit more with some of the tournament format, but too early to tell there, but important updates nonetheless. Uh, let me know if you like this new update the PFL Bellator has rolled out. I'm a big fan. I think it's good for business on their side. I think it's the right way to move forward. We'll see what it yields, but I think I think it's probably the best thing they could have done at the time. Have this champ versus champ uh, type of fight every year, and then regionals and the big tourney. Let me let me know your thoughts on all that because it's it's definitely a move, and and I, I think it's the right one. All right, guys, that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast, the FBP, as I like to call it. Uh, Like, share, subscribe if you haven't done that already. If you're listening on audio, appreciate you guys as always. Sorry if my voice started to go towards the end there. Still not 100% healthy, but was super happy to do two podcasts in back-to-back weeks. Hopefully, this is a trend we can build on. Um, Let me know if there's any topics you want to cover. Again, antitrust lawsuit is going to be the biggest one and some of the other things happening with TKO and UFC, uh, UFC has big events coming up uh, a couple of different business things i've been hearing about rumblings we'll see if those rumors start to kind of emerge if they do i'll be on top of them Uh, but love you guys as always and until next time get money